0: Lead Time is a podcast of the Unite Leadership Collective, hosted by Tim Allman and Jack Kalleberg. Lead Time taps into biblical wisdom for practical solutions to today's burning issues. Each podcast confronts real-time struggles facing the local church in a post-Christian culture. Step into the action with the ULC at UniteLeadership.org. This is Lead Time.
1: Happy day. Welcome to Lead Time. Uh, Tim Allman here with Pastor Joe Barron. And today's topic... A little bit of clickbait, I'll be honest with you, Joe, is uh, based on a best practices in ministry, a BPM presentation that uh, Pastor Joe uh, from Bethlehem Lutheran in Santa Clarita, California, uh, also a former vicar with me, uh, honored to spend a year with him here at Christ Greenfield, and your presentation, which got a, a lot, a lot of folks that came in, some some LCMS dignitaries uh, stopped in to hear this, and I love how you put it, Joe, just an average pastor from California. You're not average, bro. You're extraordinary. And I mean this uh, sincerely. You are so bright and reasonable. And the way you engage in in what could be a very divisive conversation is filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with, at the end of the day, optimism for a new day for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. So here was the title. Will the LCMS be gone by 2041? And the answer the survey says, Joe?
0: No. No. No, there you go. If that's all that you were here for, you know, (laughs) that's, you can go back to whatever you were doing. But um, it it actually, the whole idea for it came up uh, last time when I was on the podcast because we were talking about that 2019 ELCA data. And, uh, and, kind of what happened was I started to form a presentation out of that for best practices that was really asking, what could we do if we're headed in this direction to change things? And then like three or four weeks before the best practices presentation, uh, there was the Lutheran survey, uh, Lutheran religious life survey, the LSRS. And, uh, it dropped a ton of, like, really good data and projections for the LCMS moving forward. And when I say good, I don't necessarily mean optimistic um, or, like, <laughs> positive. I mean, like, it, it's just very good helpful. scholarship. Yes, yes, very helpful work that, uh, that I think is the lineman stone, I think, is the name of the, the gentleman who That's uh, right. put it together. Yeah. That's
1: right. So for those who don't know, just summarize at a high level, what was the ELCA projections uh, heading into 2041? It's not good.
0: Yeah, the ELCA projections that Faith Seminary put out was like in 2019 they had like 899 thousand people across America and worship on a Sunday, and by 2041 it would be under 18 thousand. Wow. Um, and I don't know if they've continued on that track or if they've you know changed that track at all because there hasn't been much updates since then. Uh, I'm told that kind of after that was released, there yeah, a few people got moved around. If that makes sense from from the role that they were in, so. Um, <laughs> Because it was so happen. honest, like yeah, it was, it, was, it was. I well, so maybe because it was so honest, there's. Uh, I I emailed some people from our own Senate about it because I was wondering, you know, like, do we have something like this? And the feedback they gave me was there was a little bit of suspicion that um, that it was a little bit politicized too. It was, hey, mm-hmm. we're going down some places yeah. that we're not comfortable, so we're going to make things seem a little bit worse than they are.
1: Sure. So. What did uh, the new Lutheran uh, survey from an LCMS perspective uh, reveal, Joe? So it's, it's nowhere
0: near as bad as the ELCA's projection, but That's it good. also is uh, not great. Um, so the long and short of it would be by, I think it's by 2070, which is you know about 50 years from now, uh, we'd be, if we continue on our current rate of loss, we'd be at about uh, 20% of the size we are right now. Wow. So it's a similar trajectory. It has really big implications for a lot of, you think we have a lot of schools, we have a lot of our universities, nonprofits, our churches, like the implications for it are really big. Um, And so the heart of my best practices presentation was like, okay, we're looking at this. Um, Is there some things that we could do intentionally to start to turn this around? And why is it as bad as it is data-wise?
1: So for those, just using some larger numbers, let's say we're roughly 2 million, we're slightly less than mm-hmm. that, I think, in membership. That has mm-hmm. us down to about 400 communicant members. Is that 400,000 communicant yep, 400, members or something? 400,000
0: communicant members, yeah. Yeah, which if you think of your own congregation and communicant members to actual people attending worship, um, doesn't bode out very well.
1: No, it doesn't. So what are some of the the ideas? You had these you know, um, not to throw out some names, but – well, I'll throw out some names. Our president <laughs> from uh, – Mike Gibson from our district president here in the Pacific Southwest District. Mm-hmm. Uh, president Richard Snow from the Nebraska District. Uh, they were they were there. And uh, what was some of the the feedback you got? Because I listened to just part of the presentation. When you have something like this in a room, you know, 40, 50 people, um, you can have some mixed responses. What was the overall response yeah. to these numbers?
0: I, I was – I was grateful overall because um, there's nobody like the data is laid out transparent enough. um, And if you listen to the presentation, they go into a lot of like the mathematics of why it is what it is that it's very, very hard to argue against it. Um, You can say, you know, Oh, I think we might need to focus on this aspect instead as we move forward into the future. But it's really hard to argue with the actual numbers of the situation. So like, Overall, the the feedback that I got was overwhelmingly pretty positive and collaborative. Um, I think there was a little bit of fear and trepidation about um, what this might mean for moving forward into the LCMS, like for uh, you know a lot of our institutions and things like that. But I think people were pretty open to having some good conversations on that.
1: It's great to hear, and that is the. The spirit, uh, if you will, of the best practices conference, and so shout out to Pastor Jeff Shrank and the whole team that put that on for 2,200, uh, mostly Lutheran Church Missouri Synod leaders from across uh, the the country converging on Phoenix, Arizona, every February. I don't know what 13, 14 years strong now. It's pretty, pretty extraordinary uh, what happens there. So thank you, thank you, Pastor Schrenk. Uh Let me let me ask you this, Joe. I think a lot of times when we talk about this sort of a it could be seen as a doom and gloom We're we're going down, you know, and then if as we start to talk about other solutions, other opportunities, I think some within the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod would say, man, you guys are going to compromise on doctrine. Um, you're you're just progressive. You're you're left. You're not really a, a true conservative Lutheran. What do you say to that, Joe?
0: Yeah, um, well, it's one of those things where I think you have a lot of amazing historical examples where we have seen a need and and said, as Lutherans, we're still going to be confessional faithful to the scriptures and our, our confessions and, uh, and move forward in that direction to, to try new things in the meantime. Um, it, it's one of those... Um, there's so many places scripturally where when you learn about fear, it's never like a healthy thing other than the fear of God, right? Outside of the fear of God, uh, it's never an overwhelmingly healthy or a positive thing. Um, and so it's like, if we really believe that that perfect love casts out fear, then yeah, we want to be faithful to our confessions, to the word of God, to what we believe in what we do. Uh, but at the same time, I I mean, there's so many scriptural examples you can think of, like uh, you think of, you know, Matthew 25 and the parable of the talents, where at the end of the day, we're accountable to God for what we do with what he's given us. Um, Mm -hmm. As part of my research initially into this, um, I remember I was, uh, before I had the projections from linemen, I was trying to kind of do some myself. And so I started digging into the archives of kind of year over year, what are things looking like? Um... And there's headlines from the LCMS from like 20, I want to say like 2013 to 2018, where year over year, the headline is, um, giving is up, numbers are down, giving is up, numbers are down. And it's, it's like, you read that in the parable of the talents and it's like, well, let's, you know, if this is where we're at, then why are we just sitting in a lot of our comfortable institutions with what we have instead of trying something creative so that we can reach more people.
1: Yeah. You know, on the bell curve, the growth curve. Um the time the time to innovate is at the ex- at that moment when you say, hey, there are there's some data points here that are a little inconsistent. Great that giving is up. And I would say right now that uh, many of our leaders are resting in the fact that we have resources and and kind of shrugging their shoulders at the fact that, we're not reaching the next generation as well as we could and should. And uh, we don't have the leadership development pipeline by vocational to full-time vocational leaders. but we, hey, we're, we're you know pretty wealthy. We're, we're well off. And I think the parable of the talents is exactly right. You wicked and you bar- are we burying the talent right now uh, that the master has entrusted to us? Hey you, yeah, you listening. Do you like personal finance or real estate? Are you itching to build wealth and create a better life for yourself or your family? Then you need to come check out the Life, Money, and More podcast with real estate agent, YouTuber, and actor, Sage Weiss. This isn't your average finance show. We dive deep and do not sugarcoat topics around money and life. The Life, Money, and More podcast releases two episodes a week just for you because we're all about helping you win in this crazy world we live in. Come join the thousands of listeners on the life money and more podcast.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a very convicting thing to read as a church leader that ultimately makes you lean all the more into the grace of Jesus, but at the same time, really question, what am I doing with what God's given me that way? Um, So there's a few things that I think we should hit up uh, from the the lineman thing, some data points. Uh, If you're wondering why, so the thing that I really appreciate about the LSRS is that it's extremely transparent for why the decline is at the the degree to which it is. So uh, the guy who put it together um, actually goes back about 14 years in time, and he takes all of the baptisms from that point in time. And he moves forward in 14 years, and he takes all of the confirmations at that point in time. And he says, okay, well, if you look at just baptism to confirmation across the synod uh, the last, over the last 14 years, we've already overall lost about 60% at that point. And then, yeah, so we've already lost about it. if you take the because I, I think it's one of those like that's it's a shocking thing. But I think a lot of pastors have experientially you've maybe seen or felt this before where, you know, family wants to get their kid baptized and you have this conversation with them. They're showing up at church for a while um, and then the baptism happens and then they kind of fall into the background or they they start to fall off. Right. This it's not like an unheard of pa- pattern for a lot of pastors that I know. Um, and So it's, I think, when you have like a frequency of that. And then uh, he took that data even further forward and uh, added kind of the results of the, the CCES. It's another kind of uh, synodical survey that's out there for those that are in our synod that are about 20 years of age. And he says the, the loss is as high as up to 80% when you add that. Mm. Um, so for so our younger be clear, generation.
1: just mm-hmm, to Just to be clear, this is from the time, and most of these baptisms would be infant, right? Yep. Infant baptisms to the time, you know, uh, maybe 12, 13, 14 years later, we're losing 60 to 80% of those young people during that time span. 0 to
0: 14 is about 60%. If you move that up to 20, it gets to almost as high as 80%. Yeah. Wow. So, like, that's a, a huge thing where it's like we have a lot of our kids that are just falling through the cracks. Um, and not staying within the body of Christ, that's uh, in the talk, that's kind of one of the big points, is how do we stop the bleeding? How do we, you know, at the very least, figure out some best practices? Are there congregations out there that are Really good at discipling and catechizing families that are having baptisms and making sure that they stick around. Is there small things that they do, whether that be, hey, they appoint like a sponsor family? And I would love to have an analysis of our synod with different mm-hmm. congregation sizes as well, because um, I-, I love you, Tim, but the things that your congregation can do because the leaders that you guys have empowered is going to look very different than a congregation yep. my size. And a congregation right. my size is going to look very different than a congregation, you know, of like a little rural community of just 40 to 60 people. Right. So, uh, I'd love to see a little bit of analysis done there for some some ways that we could have some better practices.
1: That that would be huge. We unfortunately are living in a day and age where I think uh, the post Christian secular realities are are catching up. You think of a you think of the boomers, if you will. Um, who kind of leaned it? Let's just do generational analysis, and we're going to paint with a little bit of a broad brush here. But how would you mm-hmm. define boomers down to Gen X, and the way they the way they interact with the local church? I'd love to get your mm-hmm. perspective. Yeah. And, so and, uh, I, I, and lean into why then, Joe? Why then yeah. we would see uh, the sixty to eighty percent decrease?
0: Yeah. So. Um, Boomers and boomers overall are, are fascinating because boomers are uh, by and large, generally have been very much institutionalists. so a lot of high respect for institutions, whether that be uh, political party affiliation or uh, Elks Lodge participation or kind of collective community, things like that. Um, With Gen X and Gen Y, you start to see that uh, starting to fall a lot. And By the time you get to uh, millennials like myself, it's just we can't stand institutions. There's a lot of anti-institutional trust. And uh, also, there's just uh, not a lot of participation in community-based things for millennials. And so, um, you know, like for our generation, it wouldn't surprise me if there's a lot of millennials out there who – they might regularly listen to sermons. They might regularly be praying, but they are not plugged into an actual congregation. Um, mm. Sociologically, I'm not sure the explanation for that phenomenon. I don't know if it's just like the technologies that we've used have molded us or what the, the real explanation is for that. But um, it is interesting how you see these things play out, where it's like to a lot of people that you'll talk to in my generation. Um, the idea of like, hey, we need to build a bigger building as a congregation, um, is is kind of crazy. It's like you already have a building that that for a lot of churches like isn't doing anything six days a week, and especially mm. like if you're in like an LA context where there's like homeless people around you and they don't have a like a roof over their head, and you're a church and like like Jesus like is called you to serve. Like there's a lot of things like that that uh, for my generation they just have trouble really syncing up like how these things line up. Uh, mm. But yeah, the, the 80% for younger generations, I, I think you're pretty honest where um – Oh, this is the other piece of data, actually, that is pretty big on this. Our Senate our, our did a really beautiful um, millennial study a couple of years ago, and one of the things that they found is the drop-off rate in millennials directly parallels a drop-off rate from the baby boomer boomers in the 70s and 80s. So in the 70s and 80s, there is a drop-off about 30 40% of baby boomers. Millennials kind of sees that same parallel, so it shouldn't be a crazy surprise. Gen Z, you're kind of seeing a similar reality as well.
1: Wow. And that's just building on it on itself, generation to generation mm-hmm. on the decline. Yeah. So uh uh David
0: Kinneman had a book. It's kind of older by now, I guess. Um, Unchristian came out in yeah, like the late 2000s. Yeah, yeah. And it talks a little bit about this. And Barnes done a lot of research on this, where it's like the, one of the biggest factors for millennials that did stay participating within the body of Christ um after college um was that. Faith was a daily active uh, faith had a daily active role in conversations in their household. Like it was seen as something very significant um, for a lot of younger kids, it's one of those like, okay, I know my parents go to church on Sunday, but I don't see why this is actually important for me. I don't get why it's so important to them really.
1: So let's get to some solutions from your perspective and from the presentation. The first solution yep. you say is stop the bleeding. What do you mean by that? Stop <laughs> the bleeding?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well it's, it's just what we talked about, right. Where it's like, if we're losing like 80% of our kids before they even get to the age of 20, we got to do something about it. And, and I think the, from like a, data perspective the the best thing we could do is is to see are there pastors and churches who are nailing this that we could learn some things from and, and give some better practices to our people for moving forward on this um, and then the other the other aspect too is even if you take all of the uh, 20 and under stuff and push that aside um, evangelism has just very much fallen flat uh, mm. within our church body um, and and there's uh, this the Lsrs goes into a lot of more into this, uh, where it's one of those, like, even for people who see evangelism as a priority within our church body, like most of them, if you ask them, like, oh, have you shared your faith with somebody this last year, Um, haven't necessarily done that. Um, and it's one of those. And I think a lot of times with evangelism for our people, we treat it as an extremely intimidating thing. Like you have to be like the Bible answer man because somebody's going to ask you, like, "Well, what about you know carbon dating facts?" Or what about like like they're going to dig into these aspects so that you're just ugh, I don't know that I'm equipped to answer that. And um, I always love for evangelism the way that you see Jesus calls disciples because it's just like, "Hey, just come and see." Right? It's very invitational. It's just come and see. Um, so the LSRS points out that for every 15 adults that we gain in the LCMS due to aging out and also due to uh, just people leaving the church body, we lose about 20. So year over year, yeah. So that's very problematic as well. So stop the bleeding, the big two things would be, what can we do to make sure that we are better at uh, retaining, keeping our youth and young adults? And then how do we uh, kind of encourage and move our people Uh, and even our pastors more proactively towards evangelism and invitation. You hear a lot about supply chains these
1: days because if the past couple years have taught us anything, it's that an efficient, well-managed supply chain is absolutely critical to keeping businesses successful and consumers happy. I'm Will Haywood, and I host a podcast called All Business, No Boundaries, where we talk about supply chains, how they work, what happens when they don't, and the innovations that are redefining what's possible in the world of logistics. Join me for insightful interviews with thought leaders and industry experts. We discuss how optimizing supply chains can break down the barriers that are holding businesses back. That's All Business, No Boundaries by DHL Supply Chain. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll I'll summarize what I heard you say, and I agree we need deeper, more robust catechesis in our homes. Um, And catechesis sounds like that's just instruction in the faith Uh, from, you can use Luther's small catechism, the new annotated large with commentary, (laughs) large, whatever you wanna use, but the more conversations that we're having about Jesus and Mm -hmm. his role right now in the world, God's work in the world with our kids who are seeing the world unraveling, the more conversations around dinner tables that we're having, um, the, the better it's going to be. And then are, are pastors and churches equipping, are they really viewing themselves as equipping the saints uh, for these conversations, or are they a one-stop shop on a Sunday for Word and Sacrament? I think this is the time for 24-7 uh, discipleship formation, especially rooted for moms and dads uh, shaping the hearts and minds of their kids. Anything more to add on that, Joe? No, you, you nailed it. And— what a time to have the technology to do it in ways that,
0: you know, right. Luther couldn't even dream of. This idea of like, no, you could actually have incredible instruction digitally and have videos that families could pull up and watch together. And there's a lot of opportunity out there for it. So.
1: Amen. Amen. And then the second thing is Luther's doctrine of vocation. And how do we connect, uh, you know, evangelism to our various vocational offices? And not in a scary way, but in a very, a very storied way. Like, this story has just captured me. Uh, come in here, come and see what Jesus has done in my life. And I'm not a kooky Christian that's gonna ram it down your throat. I'm just a normal guy who's experienced a life and the hope of the forgiveness of sins, uh, the hope for the future, the resurrection of the dead that comes through Jesus. Are we having, are we setting up in a variety of different vocational spaces those conversations? So if we focus on catechesis and evangelism, you know, best. Best practices highly contextual. Then that's going to look different uh, depending on where our churches are located. But I think that gives us the best chance to uh, to change this curve. So stop the bleeding is one. And then you say something that's a little bit counterintuitive. And I'd love for you to lean into this. You say yeah. we should start more churches. Start more yes. churches. Our churches yes. are closing. They're declining. We don't have enough leaders. Start more churches. What? Yeah, so this is
0: a fascinating one um, because as I was like trying to figure out like, okay, what are things that have been proven to be helpful? Um, there's a decent amount of data out there that show that for some reason or another, New church plants are a lot more effective at evangelism and inviting people that were previously unchurched and not connected to the body of Christ. Um, so I lean heavy, heavy in, the, that whole, in this whole section in by uh, into a work by uh, the Texas district president Mike Newman, and uh, and there's a few. Like major studies out there that have shown that a well-equipped, and that phrase does a lot of heavy lifting because um, I talked to some of our church planners before my presentation. I forgot to throw this in. Um, And well-equipped is not necessarily where we're at with a lot of our church planners in the LCMS. We could do a little bit better in terms of uh, equipping, Um, (laughs) but well-equipped church planner uh, will generally have a church on average of about 250 after about four or five years. And of that, of that amount, um, usually about 40 to 50% would be previously unchurched people, which is Mm. incredible. Um, Mm. and so, um, Newman, I totally suggest you read his paper uh, on this in the Lutheran Society for Missiology uh, because he has some like really crazy prescriptions. But the one that I really latched on to that I wanted to share was uh, this awesome prescription that he has where he says, what if we got 20% of our church body, about 1,200 of our churches, we broke them into groups of three. And we said, we're going to have you three get together and start uh, either two new Churches or two new preaching stations over the next decade. So historically in the LCMS, I don't know if you guys have ever gone into this in the podcast. There was something regularly called preaching stations. Have you heard of this? Yep. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Where it would be, it would be. You'd have somebody who would uh, traditionally this wasn't even necessarily a pastor. I think. I think you would sometimes have people in this office called evangelists who would participate right. in this. Um, mm-hmm. That would just go somewhere. They'd have a few songs, hymns, preaching the word, and would let that start to slowly draw and bring people to the point where once it was at a certain kind of momentum, a momentum. hey, we're going to start a church. That's We're going to plant. So um, within our history, this used to be very much the norm and the expectation that if you are a church in the LCMS, you're doing this. Every church has that responsibility. Um, it's not until you get into kind of the, the 60s and 70s where all of a sudden kind of something shifts and instead of church planting being seen as a responsibility for every congregation, it starts to get seen as, oh, this is a district, this is a synodical thing, and be- becomes less and less frequent. And church planters have to be, you know, very professionally great guys, and uh, things really start to fall off from there.
1: Man, I would love to explore, and this is what the ULC, Unite Leadership Collective has been down this path for a while, the Office of Evangelist. Have you heard of Tony Webb? Um, Joe, the name you,
0: sounds really familiar. You're going yeah, yeah, yeah. to, he's going to yeah. be
1: working with our district, uh, to talk about, uh, the GSE process of church planning. It's the gather shepherd elder model. And, uh, so you have the gregarious extrovert, the one that just serially loves to gather people, whether it's at their home or some meeting place, they're just, they're just people magnets. Um, Mm -hmm. They gather, and then they partner with a a shepherd. Now, the fascinating thing about the GSE, the Gather Shepherd Elder Model, is the shepherd necessarily isn't um, the preaching, long-term, sustainable, ordained, even, pastor. It's probably one of the people that are more like the evangelist uh, proclaimer. They start to gather often in homes or in smaller communities. And then as the movement grows, as the gatherer invites more people to hear, hear God's word, they're shepherded uh, by that respective leader. Then over time, the church gathers an elder or what we would say an ordained pastor, one who has been brought in to bring kind of ecclesiastical and theological oversight uh, to the whole uh, gathering. And Mm. this happens, and it's replicated and started church planting movements, especially in Ohio, uh, that have just been serial, you know? And I think this is something we need to explore right now. It doesn't necessarily need to be, hey, we're going to invest $250,000 and, you know, $150,000 as a church into one leader. Um, it, It needs to be more of a team approach. And from what I've seen, the Gather Shepherd elders model um has some serious serious legs serious potential Uh, any thoughts on that
0: uh i love it i i think i listened to one of his books like five or six years ago where he has that he has the he's the rabbit elephant guy right yeah raising rabbits not
1: elephants is is one of his best books yeah
0: yeah so rapid multiplication sticks with you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> really. can I, can I re- reiterate the metaphor where he's like he's like yep. if you stick two rabbits in a room you know give them enough food water everything to be healthy and two elephants in a room in a different room you know give them enough food water everything to be healthy like and you come back in like 5 years like one of those rooms is going to be exploding with rabbits and the yep. other you're going to be lucky if you have a
1: single elephant at the end of it right right so yeah. we need rapid multiplication right now and that that leads toward the conversation on on new ways to develop leaders. Uh, everyone who's been listening to this knows that we have uh, a partnership with the Luther House of Studies and are praying for more Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod theologians to come alongside this model. Uh, we're not overly impressed with a strong, strong vision to just bring them here, just bring them here. Uh, we are seeing an explosion of especially bivocational second career leaders wanting robust Lutheran teaching along with high hyper-contextual and very, very cost-effective theological formation. So any other models that you've explored um, that could lead toward this sort of uh, new church explosion within the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod? Um, yeah, so
0: the, I'm glad you you brought that up because in the presentation I kind of used an economics metaphor for it, the, Yeah. the talk term about of, of bottlenecking. So um, there's bottlenecks in economics or another way that You'll hear it as kind of regulatory capture where you have supply and demand. And when there's something that gets between those two that inhibits <laughs> supply's ability to meet demand, there's a bottle deck. And so uh, a lot of times state regulations can do this a little bit where so like in California, if you want to be a beautician, you have to have like 24 credit hours and a certain amount of like proven work hours on top of that apprenticing. And it's not that big of a deal for a beautician, right? At the end of the day, you pay $10 more or whatever for your haircut, whatever. Um, But if you get into other fields like electricians, all of a sudden a fascinating thing starts to happen where if you compare uh, state by state, states that have mandated requirements across the state for all their electricians and states that have none, um, while there is a little bit of a difference in cost and wait time in states that have the, the mandate on them, one of the things that you'll notice is that there's also an increase in electrical-related deaths. And you would expect it to be in the states without the licensing, but it's actually in the states with the licensing. Um, and the reason for that is because a lot of times what happens is if there if you have to wait a little while to get electrical work done, right, you might say, well... You know, I'm going to call my brother-in-law, I'm going to call my cousin who kind of has an idea. Oh, I'm going to go watch a YouTube video online, and I'm sure that'll teach me everything that I need to know. And in the process of that, either you get hurt or a lot of times what ends up happening is somebody will do a slipshod job that down the line will cause a fire and people will get hurt because of it. Um, And I kind of make this comparison with pastors in our synod a little bit where, so for example, uh, I'm a coastal pastor and like in my circuit, there really, there really aren't churches that can like on their own with just their tithe afford a full time pastor. Wow. That's part of the reality. Um, and I think you are getting a lot more rural places in the the Midwest that are starting to feel and experience this. But coastally, um, the cost of living is so high that even if a church has a, a decent income, um, it's really hard to to get somebody that'll be your full-time guy out here. And so there's kind of a question that we need to be willing to answer as a synod, which is, are we comfortable saying to those churches, well, you can't afford afford a full-time guy? guess you're not going to have a a Word and Sacrament pastor. Are we willing to get a little bit creative in how we do things and say, you know what, we're we're willing to opening, opening this bottleneck a little bit? And the question really is just, where do we want to open it or how do we want to open it? So historically like we've messed with these things all the time uh one of my favorite examples um is fort wayne when it first started like right now we had way more churches asking for pastors than we were actually able to produce so the very first class out of fort wayne after one year of classes they took i think about like 30 of the class said all right you're good to go 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 serve. It's the next year. They took another, like half of that class that, all right, just get out of here. Like you, you don't need this final year. Go serve. Churches need you. And the guys who stayed all three years, like some of them came in, not knowing how to read and write period. So we, we had a mindset where we historically have been willing to say, we will lower that educational barrier a little bit. I like our high educational barrier. It's good to have robust high theologically trained pastors, but there's other barriers as well. There's fiscal barriers like you talked about. There's uh, temporal barriers you're committing like three years of your life along with um, all the other responsibilities you have. Uh, There's travel barriers for a lot of our methodologies where currently for every single stick, like you are going somewhere for some amount of time. Um, And so, yeah, we should be able and willing to ask ourselves, are we willing to change some of these so that we could help uh, our churches who really cannot afford a pastor to have a pastor and so that we can have enough pastors to really try some new creative things. If we wanna start planting churches or if we wanna start some new, new things, then we have to raise up enough guys to do that.
1: What must be said based on the Fort Wayne being the practical seminary for a season and the one or two year experience is there was no other method for delivering theological formation at a high level mm-hmm the internet did not exist like technology. Uh, it w- it was literally about going to a place for content. That's not the way the world works today. It is about yeah. curation. Can we get our theologians in the room to talk about how to best curate the best content so that character and craft formation can take place for the sake of the local church. And right now, um, uh, with many of our leaders, it is falling on, on deaf ears. I, um, I've been talking about, you know, how do we this this economic reality, this, this bottleneck of of the forty to fifty thousand dollars that's even needed for the specific ministry pastor program, the SMP program, and um, I've heard some of the solutions being, well, if the church can't afford it, could a number of churches come together to pool resources to to pay for that one pastor? And I'm like. You're thinking way too small, bro. We need to flip the script to say yep. can one church raise up 10 different pastors to start new ministries even to sustain the local ministry that's that's taking place. I think we're we're coming from we think that our churches are healthier than they are. And those who have the ability to influence formation are, are kind of just, well, Here's this is all we got right now. And for those of us that are exploring innovative innovative ways, I think we get put into a corner to say, no, you're being unfaithful. Actually, if folks like us don't sound the horn right now, we'll continue on this decline and it will be very, very unfortunate. I'm telling you, let me. we have never had, Joe, in the 10 years I've been a pastor here at Christ Greenfield, more robust, conservative, confessional, con- centered in the Lutheran confession conversations than we're having right now. Like, mm-hmm. I th- I, in terms of accountability for me as a, as a preacher, proclaimer of law and gospel— it's never been more robust. I mean, I got students that are like, they're, and then they're having conversations. Why do you say it like this? Could you have said it like this? You know, um, mm-hmm. it is, if you want to go down this path, you will throw gasoline, Holy Spirit gasoline on good Lutheran conversation. Um, it's not going to be, I want it cheaper. I want to compromise. I want to, no, 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 no. This is truly about scale to meet the needs of a rapidly declining denomination who at the end of the day, I believe we have the goods. Our theology is nails. So why would we want to bottleneck this, Joe? It doesn't make any sense.
0: Yeah, it's, it's one of those, it's kind of a very preservationist mindset that is, and that's that's kind of what's so hard is uh, there's, there's probably some sociological phenomena about this where there's always this temptation as things are, you know, declining or as things look really bad to just want to batten down the hatches and we got to, you know, raise up our fences and guard what we have to the fullest extent in which we can. Um, and I think that's part of why, like, you know, I said earlier, the, the plant more churches reality is that kind of. That kind of collaborative thinking of, like, what can we start or what can we do, uh, it, it also starts to move things in a healthier direction. It really shifts you away from yourself and more towards, you know, the people around you,
1: the community around you to which God has called you. Amen. Amen. This has been fun, bro. I love your heart. love your passion. thanks for your deep uh, research, being a partner with Unite Leadership Collective. Uh, the videos that you have done in the past, kind of sounding the siren on this on this struggle have been fantastic, and you know it sets up good conversation you hang you hang in a lot of different you 're on social media, I think a, a little bit more and I love I that you 're there.
0: I, I actually hate social media. This is like, yeah. I wish that we could sometime have a conversation about social media because I well, think like just the church... It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, long story short, the- you think? I think that... Christians are horrible about following the eighth commandment overall on social media. There's something innately about the way that social media works that drives us to a place where, especially like if you read Luther's large catechism on the eighth commandment and like Mm -hmm. what it fully means about like, no, if you weren't really present for that, you shouldn't be commenting on that. Like, we innately break that on social media all the, all the time. time. Like, there's something about the platform that just lends its lends itself towards it, and so it's this catch-22 where, like, the way the technology works, in my opinion, drives us towards doing those sorts of eighth commandment-breaking things. And yet, the hard thing about it is, like, if my church was having a block party, or if, like, let's say this this actually used to happen, where the city would throw a party right behind our church on the street, right? And, and if like 6 million people were going to be there, like it would be idiotic for my church not to have a presence there. So it's this real tension for a lot of church leaders where it's like, okay, you have to figure out how you're going to engage with this in a way where it's very healthy, where it's very uplifting. Uh, we're going to be building up the body of Christ where you're going to give. This would be the hugest thing in the world if all Christians would just say, we are going to give one another a, every single thing that we ra- read online, the most optimistic, generous reading that we can. Instead of just trying to take it out of context or studying, instead of trying to like be like, oh, can this be kind of interpreted in this way? No, give it the most generous interpretation possible because that's what you're called to do.
1: The problem with Um, that is that that won't get the views. No, that's yeah.
0: You need clickbait like my headline, right? Will the LCMS be gone? Right? You. That's that's what's so hard about the digital platform. Yeah,
1: right. Unless there's fear and disagreement, conflict. People don't—people aren't going to—it's too vanilla. It's, you know, too Mm -hmm. mundane. Uh, This is—it's been built on division. Social media is built on separating me sociologically, better looking, whatever. You can go how that's impacting our kids, what I have, to how right I am theologically. It it is— very, very polarizing, and I pray, and we're. this is why we're trying to set up conversations with people that we can honestly disagree with here on Lead Time, um, and, and disagree, you know, around maybe nuances of how the church lives to, today, but agree on our Nicene Confession, agree on law and gospel, word and sacrament being carried out faithfully. We need to have those conversations, and we need to personalize those who we disagree with, because I— People would never say because they 'd see the hurt on my face, people would never say to my face some things that are said you know on on social or to about you or about you u l c or whatever like that would yep. be that would be very very offensive sociologically we wouldn't do it, but we write it um so it's it's an unfortunate time, and I pray that we have uh, uh, the Holy Spirit descend upon us and that we control at the end of the day. By the Spirit's power, well, what we can control at the local level. E- Go ahead, exactly.
0: Jill. Like that's what's so hard about this is like you think of Martin Luther's day. Like Martin Luther was the master of his social media in his day, right? Why? Because the printing press came out and he was the one who really started getting his stuff, printed it out there. And he experimented with it too, right? He had a bunch of little tracks and things that he would print that way. Why, why did he print it that way? Because he knew it could be more mass consumed. He knew it could get out to more people. So it's like, he was still very wise in what he did with the media platform that he had in his day. And likewise, as a church, we should be intentional and wise as well. Amen. Amen. Joe, if people want to connect with
1: you, how can they do so?
0: Uh, that's a great question. <laughs> you could just email Pastor Joe at Bethlehem S C V or joe.barron at gmail.com and uh, include your phone number.
1: So, I love amen. it. And I love that including your phone number because you want to actually have a conversation, not yes. just an email chat. Isn't that I right? don't like email. I,
0: there's, If you ever want a good book, read A World Without Email by Cal Newport. He explains technologically why email just doesn't make a lot of
1: sense. It doesn't. Pick up the phone. Have the conversation. Go old school, people. That's That's what we're doing today. So this is lead time. Uh, Sharing is caring. Please get the word out. Like, subscribe. Wherever it is you're taking this in, uh, whether it's on iTunes, Spotify, wherever it is, Google Podcasts, wherever it is that you're hanging out with us, uh, comment and like and subscribe. And we are committed to bringing uh, wonderful Jesus-centered conversations, identifying the struggles of this day within the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, but like Joe has brought, bringing hope, which is centered in Jesus, who is a crucified and risen and reigning and soon to return king. Uh, Let the world know. This is Lead Time. We'll see you next week. Thanks so much, Joe. You've been listening to Lead Time, a podcast of the Unite Leadership Collective the ULC consults and brings together cohorts of congregations
0: to build the culture, systems, and structures of intentional discipleship multiplication. To go deeper with us, create a free login on UniteLeadership.org for access to exclusive materials and resources. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for next week's episode.